Paul just saying hello to us. We saw several important things that Christ would teach us. We saw the authority of Christ fully invested and manifested in the words of Paul, the last apostle. We saw the sovereignty of God proclaimed and praised in God's conversion of Paul the apostle. We saw ourselves and our desperate need for a savior reflected in the testimony of Paul. We saw grace and peace that we can only find in Christ. All of this from Paul's simple greeting. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, if we can see all of this in Paul's greeting, right, this is not something Paul is, you know, intending to use to teach us. By the Holy Spirit, we learn from Paul's greeting, but Paul is just writing us a greeting. So imagine the treasure that we will find in the words of Paul when he gets on to teaching us. That's where we begin. Verse 3. If you've ever studied Romans, you see that Paul sort of gives this introduction that serves as an outline to the whole letter. And then Paul sort of does a lot of work to lay a logical foundation with long logical argumentation, almost as though he were engaging with the Roman philosophers who would read his letter. We see several examples of rising and falling action, literary climaxes. And then Romans 3, 21 through 25, Paul gives the first resolution of the problem that he presents in Romans 1 and 2. He tells us that Christ has made propitiation. That the wages of sin is death, but in Christ there is life. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. And he explains this more in Romans 4 and 5, and then in Romans 6 and 7, Paul presents us with a new problem, where he displays the tension between God's law and grace. And then Paul resolves this tension with another literary climax in Romans chapter 8. I mention all of this to show you that Ephesians sort of does the opposite. The literary structure of Ephesians is different from Romans. Paul begins in verse 3 of Ephesians 1. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This right here is the literary focus of the entire letter. Everything in Ephesians is commentary on Ephesians 1 verse 3. It's all centered around the glory of God and blessing his people. 
Verse 3 is the climax of Ephesians. And it is the resolution of all the tension that we see later in the letter. God's glory in saving his people. In Ephesians 1, God's glory in saving his people is extolled in verses 3, 4, 5, 6, 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, 12, 13, and 14. It is very important to the text of Ephesians. So we're going to read this whole section here of Ephesians 1. Then we're going to jump into verse 3. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him in love. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will to the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses according to the riches of his grace which he lavished upon us in all wisdom and insight making known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose which he set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in him, things in heaven and things on earth. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it to the praise of his glory. So Paul begins with this exclamation of praise in order to set the tonal center for the rest of the chapter. Just like in music, every song is written in some key which tells us the tonal center of the music, Paul's first statement in this letter is the key that the whole letter is written in. Blessed be God. So he begins with an exclamation of praise to God the Father. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. When we think of blessing. We usually think of it in the context of how God has blessed us, right? We think of the things that God has done for us. We think of the grace that he has given to us. We think of the life of ours that he has sustained thus far. And while that isn't exactly what blessed means... Paul's not talking about all the great things that we have done for God when he says that God is blessed. Right? I've encountered people who think they have a lot to offer to God. In fact, we even read about that in Scripture in Matthew 17. We see Peter who thinks that he has much to offer Christ. Matthew 17, Jesus goes up onto the mountain with Uh, Peter, James, and John, and there he shines like the sun. Jesus does, not Peter. 
And while he's shining like the sun, Moses and Elijah are there with him, and they're just having a conversation. And Peter thinks he is well-equipped to bless God the Son in that moment. And he says, it is good that we are here. I will build you guys some tents. He offers to the Lord of God, to the Lord God of all creation, his ability to build tents. And God the Father rebukes him from heaven. That's not what we're talking about when we say, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Because we have not merited anything. Nothing that we can do can earn any of God's favor. Right? Prior to our conversion, apart from Christ, we are only capable of sin. This is what we see in Romans chapter 3, 10 through 18, that none is righteous, no, not one. But even after our conversion, our good works on their own do not merit any of God's favor. You're aware of this idea of crowns of righteousness. Paul says, There's laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. When I was younger, I would think of these crowns of righteousness. And for some reason, I was probably told this by a preacher I connected this reward, this crown of righteousness, with the level of service that I provided to God. That the more faithful I was, the more good works I did in his name, the prettier my crown would be. And that you could be a believer, you could have faith in Christ and live your life and do no good works in the name of Christ and that your crown of righteousness would be something like a, a sweaty headband or something. I don't know where I got this from. Because it's not what Paul's talking about when he talks about crowns of righteousness. There is laid up for me a crown of righteousness, which is my Savior. Right? Because the righteousness that I have is only the righteousness of Christ. I have no righteousness in me except that God has seen my faith and counted it to me as righteous. And in that, God is pleased in our good works. That our good works done in faith are counted righteous on account of Christ. 
Christ's righteousness is imputed to us on account of our faith. And in that, God is pleased in our good works done in faith. And so in that sense, we might say that we are a blessing to God. That God is pleased in Christ on account of our faith in his work. Paul goes on, blessed be the God and Father. I want to talk a little bit about God as Father. The first thing that we need to understand about God the Father is that it is something of a relational title. It tells us how God the Father relates to God the Son. All right, because in the Trinity we have three distinct persons and yet one God. God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. They relate to one another in an eternal, redemptive covenant where God the Father charges God the Son with becoming human and satisfying for his people a covenant of grace by his death on the cross. So God the Father is the Father of Christ. He testifies this numerous times in the Gospels and Pharisees wanted to kill him for it. But in God being the Father, we can also see how he is our Father. Now, he's not everyone's Father. Right? Those who are apart from Christ, those who's, who will suffer the wrath of God, God is not their Father, at least not in the same way that he is ours. We often think of our relationship with God in terms of God being distant and impersonal. That he is this cosmic being beyond comprehension. And so in that, things like love escape our ability to understand. But this is not what scripture teaches about God the Father. God teaches God teaches us that he is personal and intimate. Right? One of his titles is Abba, Abba Father. Right? This is the intimate way that a child might address their own father. My children call me Daddy. A relationship with God the Father is personal and intimate. This reminds me of one time I was fixing our dishwasher, which I did again this morning. You're always fixing stuff when you're a dad, right? I was fixing the dishwasher and I was getting frustrated. And Ellie could hear my frustration. She was maybe three years old. Um... I was getting mad at the dishwasher, and she comes up to me, and she says to me, Daddy, you don't have to get upset. You are the best fixer in town. 
And in that moment, I wasn't doing anything for her. I had not recently given her any treats or shown her any, any love. I was just fixing the dishwasher. And she chose to love me in the best way that she knew how, to call me the best fixer in town. And that feeling, that emotion, the love that I had for her in that moment, that's the very same love that God the Father has for his children. That unconditional love. And the love that she showed to me for no reason at all (laughs) is the way we can love God. It's the way we can relate to God, our Father. God is personal. He is real. And he loves us. And even more importantly, that love that he has for us is entirely unique. The love that God has for his people is unique only to his people. And that love that he has for his people is effectual for their salvation. We can talk about systematic theology and this thing called the the ordo salutis, which is Latin for the order of salvation. And there are all these theological moments in the spiritual life of a believer that we can identify that are taught in Scripture. This is where we take scripture and we synthesize all of the ideas. And we can sort of write down the order that all of these things happen in. We have, in eternity past, a covenant of redemption between God the Father and God the Son. We have election, God's eternal decree that he would save his people. And we can put all these things in order, but in some sense... We can say that the cause of all of it is God's love. That the cause of your salvation is that God has loved you as his child. You have been saved because God is your father. By his decree. And it is in this love that Paul says that we are blessed in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. So we can say that our salvation is first caused by God's love for us as his people And then Paul tells us that we are blessed in Christ. And in doing this, he is telling us the way in which we are saved. The actual mechanism of our salvation. These blessings are communicated in Christ. What has Christ done to bless us? God's people. God's children. Right? We see in Romans 3 that the righteousness of God is manifested in a different way from the law. 
That is that Christ upholds the law in perfect obedience, manifesting the righteousness of God. This is the first part of Christ's work. And then on the cross, Christ endured the wrath of God for our sins. And Paul would tell us there in Romans 3 that God has put Christ forward as the propitiation by his blood. Propitiation is an important word. It is used four times in the New Testament. What it means is that God's wrath is satisfied. It means that the thing that the law requires of God, because the law has requirements for God, right? The law has lots of requirements that God in some sense expects men to obey. But the law also has requirements that it places upon God because they are God's promises. And God cannot go back on his promises. And that is that God has promised to judge every law breaker. And so this propitiation speaks of the satisfaction of those requirements. So that when Christ dies on the cross, spills his blood, and breaks his body for his people, those things that the law requires of his people are satisfied. In this case, the law requires of us death, right? The law requires of all people death. But the work of Christ on the cross is to satisfy that particular requirement, death. Christ dies. He endures the wrath of God. And God the judge is satisfied in that. This is what it means when Paul says that we are blessed in Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. God the Father, the righteous judge, is satisfied. The work of Christ is effectual for what the work of Christ accomplishes. When Paul testifies in Romans 3 that Christ is propitiation, that Christ has satisfied the wrath of God, there is no doubt, there can be no doubt, no debate that Christ has accomplished it. And there are many who say he has not. There are many who say that when Christ says it is finished, he's just talking about the end of his life. It's an actual thing someone has said to me, that when Christ is on the cross and he says it is finished, that he's just referring to the end of his life and he's going to die. When Christ says it is finished, he is referring to the work that he was sent to complete by God the Father. When Christ says it is finished, he is saying he has accomplished the propitiation 
that the law requires. There can be no doubt that those for whom Christ died are saved. Christ does not accomplish this work for all people. Christ accomplishes this work for a very specific people. His people, those given to him by the Father. To say that Christ died for every person is to say that Christ did not accomplish redemption. That redemption is not complete. That in order for the work of Christ to become effectual, something must be added. If Christ has died for all people, then either God's wrath has been satisfied against all people or Christ's work is insufficient and ineffectual. Paul goes on. Not only have we been blessed in Christ, but we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. This work of Christ is inseparable from the blessing of Christ. The work of Christ cannot be separated from the grace of God in Christ. If you have been blessed in Christ, then you have been blessed with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. That is, if Christ's work is accomplished on your behalf, then every spiritual blessing is yours. Now, throughout history, men have come up with many schemes, many clever inventions, different ways to heaven, different ways to know Christ. And this shouldn't surprise us, right? The teacher tells us in Ecclesiastes 7, God made man upright, but they have sought out many schemes. And later that there is nothing new under the sun. That every wacko that comes up with a new plan for knowing God is just repeating the lies of the devil before him. One of these schemes is rampant in our society. It defines the religious culture of our country. It goes by many names. I think the technical term is prevenient grace. But if that word doesn't mean anything to you, The teaching that lies beneath it will. Prevenient grace teaches us that Christ died for all people. And that because of this, all people receive some particular spiritual measure of grace. 
that so enables them to respond positively to the call of the gospel. Sound familiar? That everyone's got just enough of the Spirit in them. That on their own, they can hear and believe, apart from any further work of the Spirit. So what's wrong with this idea? Well, the Bible says it's wrong. Romans chapter 3 tells us that this doesn't make sense. Prevenient grace says everyone has just enough grace that they can seek out God and find him. On their own, without the quickening of their spirit, without the regenerating grace of God. Romans chapter 3 says, None is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, and together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive. The venom of serpents is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And their paths are ruin and misery. And the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. But you can choose Christ on your own. This passage doesn't mean anything if it doesn't apply to everyone apart from the grace of God in regeneration. Why is Paul telling us this if I can choose God on my own? Then in Romans chapter 8, Paul very plainly tells us that, quote, Man cannot please God. For those who live according to the flesh, this is Romans 8, 5, those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law. It cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Now, I talk about this because Paul is teaching against this idea in Ephesians 1, verse 3, when he tells us that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing. Paul is teaching us the exclusivity of spiritual blessing. That if you are not in Christ... There is no spiritual blessing.
those who have been blessed in Christ, that is, those who Christ has died for, have been blessed with every spiritual blessing. But this idea of prevenient grace says that those who have not been blessed in Christ also receive some spiritual blessings. This false gospel places man at the center of salvation because it makes man responsible for accomplishing and finishing the work that Christ only began. This is not a gospel at all. So when Paul says that we have been blessed in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places, it means that our sins have been forgiven, God's wrath has been satisfied against us, Christ's righteousness is ours, we have been declared holy in Christ. We have received the grace from the Spirit to read the Word and understand what it means. We've received grace for loving our neighbor, for loving our brothers and sisters in the assembly. The idea here is that you cannot receive a half measure of grace. You can't receive discount grace. God's grace is not dispensed in parts so that you can pick and choose which ones you want. If you read books about grace, you'll see grace put together with some kind of adjective. There will be chapters on all these different adjectives of grace. I read one book that had 15 or 16 different types of grace. It had a whole chapter on each one. Electing grace, sanctifying grace, relational grace, financial grace. And while there's some context where it makes sense to do that, where <laughs> where we want to talk about God's grace in regeneration. Okay, we can talk about God's grace in regeneration. Or we can talk about God's grace for maturity. Or we can talk about God's grace in sanctification or in election. And we can talk about the different contexts in which God's grace operates but we cannot make the mistake of thinking that those are different things. We cannot make the mistake of thinking that God's grace for regeneration is different from God's grace for sanctification because both of those things are found in Christ's work on the cross, given to us in the Holy Spirit in the fullness of time and our conversion. We cannot think that we have received God's grace for salvation without receiving God's grace for maturity, for sanctification. And this answers for us the question of what place good works has in our lives. Remember I talked a little bit earlier about how 
there's some sense in which God is pleased in our good works. That is, when we do them in faith, it is on account of that faith that they are counted righteous because of the righteousness of Christ. Apart from God's grace, man can only imitate the man described in Romans 3. Man can only hate God. He cannot do good. He cannot seek God. He can only produce misery and pain and bloodshed. But Paul says in Romans 8, If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. You will no longer live like you are dead because you are alive. The grace of God, having been given to you in Christ for salvation, for justification, for the forgiveness of sins, is also given you to bring life to your dead body. The very same grace, the only grace given by God, has saved you and it empowers and exhorts you into serving and pleasing God. We'll get there eventually. But in Ephesians 2, verse 10, Paul writes, We are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God has not given grace to save you and then left you to your own devices to figure out how to please him. He has created us in Christ. He has given us a full measure of grace, the full blessing, and he has given us these things to serve him, to work for him. And he has gone before us to prepare the good works for us to do. Now, I have emphasized that we should be very careful not to divide the different utilities, the different functions of God's grace as though they were different things. But there is a distinction that I do want us to keep straight. So while we can make up different names for the ways in which we are blessed in Christ, we must be careful not to separate these functions from the full dispensation of grace in Christ. But we also must be careful not to confuse the different ways in which God's grace is shown to us. We mentioned that God's grace empowers us and prepares us for good works. We need to keep that function of God's singular grace at least distinct in practice from that function of God's grace that gives us the assurance of our salvation.
the measure of grace given you for good works cannot itself be the assurance of your salvation. That is, you cannot look to your good works and find your assurance. At least not in a way that is infallible. You can look at your good works, the things you have done, and you can be moved to further praise God for his grace. You can be thankful. You can show gratitude for God's work in your life. You can find joy in the things that God has done for you and the good works that God has prepared for you. But any assurance that you find in that is going to be fallible. The infallible assurance of your faith is founded only in the blood and righteousness of Christ revealed in the gospel. This never-failing assurance in your salvation is founded on the testimony of the Holy Spirit to our souls concerning the promises made to us in the gospel. Jesus promises in John 6 that he would never cast out those who are his. Paul declares in Romans 8, I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus. This promise is the spiritual blessing given to us in Christ. This promise is given to everyone who has faith in Christ. The word of the Lord found in the gospel of Christ is the assurance, the infallible assurance of your salvation. Not your good works. So in this way, God's grace for stirring up our hearts to good working for the Lord is distinct from God's grace found in the assurance of the word of the Lord in the gospel of Christ. We just cannot look to our works for our salvation. But isn't that exactly what the world tells us to do? I mean, even, you know, the, the religious agnostics, you, you ask them, you going to heaven? Yeah, probably. How do you know? I'm a good person. And then you look at, you, know, you can look at, at Rome the teachings of Roman Catholicism that your faith in Christ cannot alone save you. 
there's some measure of working that you must do in order to earn your salvation. But isn't this exactly the same if we say, I know I am saved because of what I have done. One famous preacher has said that your obedience is the only validation of your salvation. I think that is contrary to everything that Paul would have us learn about Christ and his grace. Your assurance is found in Christ. Your righteousness is found in Christ. Your salvation is found in Christ. And all of these things in Christ alone. There is only Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit, that you have given us grace to open our eyes to see, that you have shown your light in the darkness. That we have seen and that we have heard the gospel of Christ. Be with us every day. Give us full measure of your grace, your blessing, for joy and peace and love. And every day teach us what you would have us learn from your word. We pray these things in the name of Christ. Amen.